Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Senator Bob Graham, whose 38 years of public service included two terms as governor of Florida. For the first time in the state's history, uh, we saw our education uh, programs begin to move, and in the case of the university system, actually reach the top quartile uh, in the country. We'll look at the legacy of the Civilian Conservation Corps in Florida. Ocala National Forest was actually one of the first areas that was actually created um, as a national park um, east of the Mississippi River uh, back in the days of Teddy Roosevelt. The story of the doctor who treated President Lincoln's assassin, that and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. Senator Bob Graham can be called the hardest working man in politics. His 38 years of public service included two terms as governor of Florida from 1979 to 1987, and he represented Florida in the United States Senate from 1987 to 2005. In addition to that, he famously spent more than 400 days working other people's jobs, including days as a journalist, a fisherman, a construction worker, a truck driver, and in many other occupations. Bob Graham started his tradition of work days in 1974 while he was serving in the Florida Senate. I was chairman of the state Senate Education Committee and I had been in some classrooms where I didn't think civics was being taught very well. I mentioned that to some civics teachers and they said the only way you can find out is to actually go in a classroom and find out what's going on. So I accepted and ended up teaching 18 weeks of high school civics. It was a wonderful experience. I did, in fact, learn a lot about what was going on in a modern high school. But the most important thing I learned was the difference between learning by somebody giving you a lecture or reading it in a textbook and learning by actually doing it. So I got the idea there would probably be some other things that I could learn more about by doing. And I couldn't spend 18 weeks, but I could certainly spend a day. So that started it. Uh, that uh, teaching job was number one, and uh, 30 years later, I did job number 408. As governor of Florida, Bob Graham focused his efforts on education, the environment, and jobs with significant results. For the first time in the state's history, uh, we saw our education uh, programs begin to move, and in the case of the university system, actually reach the top quartile uh, in the country. Uh, 
second uh, in the environment. Uh, we had a particularly aggressive program of land acquisition, added uh, hundreds of thousands of acres uh, of state ownership, which now are some of our most valuable environmental and recreational uh, lands, uh, and then an economic development as a, an indicator of our success. For the first time in Florida history, Floridians earned more money uh, on average than did the average American. Bob Graham left office as governor with an 83% approval rating and moved on to 18 years in the U.S. Senate. He served 10 years on the Senate Intelligence Committee before and after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Graham was one of the voices raised in opposition to the subsequent war in Iraq, which he says was one of his proudest moments as a senator. I wasn't proud at the outcome because I was fairly convinced that this was that it was not going to be a good outcome, uh, and that and that it was not going to be a good outcome because we'd been led into this war by false information. The people who gave us that information knew or should have known that it was false. As a senator and member of the CIA External Advisory Board, Bob Graham had to submit anything he wrote about the agency for approval before publishing. He had two nonfiction books partially dealing with 9-11 significantly edited by the CIA. Graham's political experience clearly informs his suspense novel, Keys to the Kingdom. The reason I wrote the novel was because I felt that there were some important unanswered questions coming out of 9-11. Uh, One of those was what was the full extent of Saudi Arabia in assisting the 19 hijackers? Uh, number two, why would Saudi Arabia have turned against its strongest ally uh, to assist uh, uh, what was our and their great enemy, uh, Osama bin Laden? Uh, and third, why has the United States gone to such lengths to cover it up? Uh, the, I've tried in nonfiction to tell those story and have been frustrated by censorship, and so I decided I would tell the story as a novel uh, where the standards of, citizen, of censorship are lower since you're not representing this to be the truth. Uh, but in fact, 40% or more of this novel uh, is truth. In addition to writing his novel Keys to the Kingdom, the senator's focus since 2005 has been on developing the Bob Graham Center for Public Service at the University of Florida. My passion since I retired from the Senate has been citizenship. Unfortunately, by uh, almost any indicator, voting, uh, participation in civic organizations, joining with neighbors to solve local problems, Citizenship has been in decline in America and in Florida. The purpose of the center is to try to understand that decline and then to reverse it. Uh, we have a number of programs, uh, including a very uh, active uh, undergraduate course, series of courses in public and civic leadership, which are designed to encourage uh, young people uh, to step forward and be part of the leadership of the public and civic institutions which are such an important part of America. 
Bob Graham ran for nomination as the Democratic Party's presidential candidate in 2004 and has been considered as a nominee for vice president. He says that since he began his political career more than four decades ago, the nature of political campaigns has changed. Well, they're much more expensive. When I ran for governor in 1978,、uh, I think my total budget for a first and second primary and general election was under five million dollars. Today, the last gubernatorial campaign, one of the candidates spent. More than 70 million of his own money,、uh, and about 100 million total、uh, on the campaign. A second thing、uh, is, it seems to me they aren't as connected to people.、Uh, in my case, as with Lawton Childs,、uh, our campaigns were largely built around getting to know and listening to the people of Florida, whether it was walking the state or working. With the people of the state today, much of the campaign is run at long distance uh, through uh, TV ads. Bob Graham's father, Ernest R. Graham, was a cattleman who also served in the Florida State Senate, inspiring his son's political aspirations. I happened to have been born the same week that he was first elected to the Florida State Senate, so I grew up、uh, in a political environment. My mother said I had a Womb affliction for politics. So yes, he was very influential, and in an extremely、uh, positive way. He had high values,、uh, and he honored public service. And I tried to be faithful to his principles. We spoke with Senator Graham in St. Augustine at the Florida Heritage Book Festival, where he was signing copies of his novel. In 2015, St. Augustine will celebrate 450 years as the oldest city in what is now the United States. Bob Graham is serving on the federal government's St. Augustine 450th Commemoration Commission. I'm a history buff, and I think if you don't know how you got to today, it's hard to try to lead people to tomorrow.、Uh, St. Augustine、uh, is a center of history for the Western world. It's one of the most important. Uh, cities uh, during the European Europeanization、uh, of the Western Hemisphere, and so understanding the history of St. Augustine uh, uh, is an important insight into answering the question of how did we get to be what we are today. Senator Bob Graham served the state of Florida for 38 years. These days, he's working as a writer, among other things. His novel, largely based on historical fact, is called *Keys to the Kingdom*.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, find great books about Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our great journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, our newsletter, the Society Report, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. To get your daily Today in Florida History update and offer your comments, follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features Bonnie McEwen, Director of Archaeology at Mission San Luis, Tallahassee. Mission San Luis in present-day Tallahassee was the western capital of Spanish Florida during the 17th century. Spanish residents of San Luis were the first permanent Europeans to live in the area, and all were related by blood or marriage to Spaniards in St. Augustine. Spaniards and Appalachian Indians both moved to San Luis at the same time, and the community reveals an amazing blend of both Hispanic and Native American traditions, ranging from community organization to foodways. Mission San Luis is the only reconstructed mission in Spanish Florida and is well worth a visit during your next trip to Tallahassee. From costumed interpreters to archaeological research to year-round camps, Mission San Luis has something for everyone. You can find out more at missionsanluis.org. Bonnie McEwen is Director of Archaeology at Mission San Luis, Tallahassee. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Dr. George Porter was the last person to see John Wilkes Booth's body. Later, he pushed for the humane treatment of eight accused conspirators and the assassination of President Lincoln. 
Janie Gould talks with retired teacher Alice Luckhart about Porter, who died in Stewart, Florida in 1919. The last person to see John Wilkes Booth's body before it was buried beneath a dirt floor was an army doctor named George Loring Porter. Porter later lived in Stewart, and Alice Luckhart, a retired teacher, has written about his remarkable life. Lincoln's assassin, his body wrapped in an army blanket and placed in a pine box, was buried at midnight. They were worried about his own supporters, Booth supporters, and Southern sympathizers coming and capturing, taking the body somehow. So it was totally secret. But I think one of the things that Porter has to be most remembered for is that he was in charge of the care of these eight conspirators. It was the Secretary of War who said, I want all those conspirators bound. I mean, they're going to have chains on their arms. They're going to get little or no food. Each is in their own cell. Well, here's Porter, a medical doctor. He can see very quickly. With They're starting to get skin disease. They're very sickly. They're coughing. They're getting no exercise, poor food. He warns his superiors, including Stanton, the Secretary of War, and Porter's defying him and saying, you're going to have to do something you're not going to have anybody to even have a trial with. They're going to die on you, or they're going to go crazy. So he loosened the rules because of Porter. Porter was the one who had to push. Now, it wasn't on the first push. He actually had to get other doctors who were specialists to back him up to say, yeah, he's right. You're going to have to do something or these guys aren't going to even make it through the trial. The eight accused conspirators went on trial and all were convicted. Four were sentenced to die by hanging and the others were sent to prison at Fort Jefferson. That's on Dry Tortugas, southwest of Key West. Porter accompanied the four to prison. It was a week-long voyage by schooner. And again, that was secretive. No one was to know because they were afraid of being ambushed, too, even in the boat. How long did he stay at Fort Jefferson, do you know? Approximately uh, two days. And it's said that he even brought a gift from Florida to one of his superiors there at the Washington Arsenal. What was the gift? That's the only thing I don't know. Some kind of little Florida whatever. Maybe a conch shell. How long did he have to keep his silence? It's like a lot of people after the Civil War. Nobody wanted to talk about anything. They just want to say, let's get this behind him. So he, because of the secrecy also, never said anything. It's not until about the 1890s he starts talking, he writes his memoirs, and he starts lecturing about his experience in the war. Now, later in life, Dr. Porter started coming to Stewart. He'd heard about the great fishing. Across the country, people were talking about President Grover Cleveland coming here and loving the fishing in Stewart. So, Dr. Porter came down, and where did he stay? Well, the well-known hotel at that time was the Danforth, along the St. Lucie River. It's long gone, right? It was torn down many years after he was there. When he was here, did he talk about the assassination and about John Wilkes Booth? Well, that was what I found out in doing my research, that that was a popular topic. He would hold literally court in the lobby there, the Danforth, tell about his many adventures. Have you found any documents or letters or newspaper clippings about his time here in Stewart? The main thing was the obituary. A nice big obituary was done after his death in the Stewart Messenger, 1919. A lot of the people that weren't part of his circle listening to his stories there at the hotel were surprised to read this, that here we had this man that was a connection with the Lincoln assassination. And they believed him. He was not a man to make up stories. Did he express any opinions about the assassination, about Booth, about Lincoln? I think one of the most fascinating items that I heard once that he said was about Mary Surratt, one of the conspirators he took care of. He believed that Mary Surratt actually believed that the killing of President Lincoln would save the Confederacy. If you had been alive when the Danforth Hotel was open and Dr. Porter was talking to people, what would you want to ask him? Oh, gosh. Um... Everybody was against these conspirators. What gave you that courage to say, this is not right, this is inhuman treatment? Janie Gould prepared that report.
This is Florida Frontiers. The legacy of the Civilian Conservation Corps can still be seen in Florida. Monica Barra takes us to the Ocala National Forest. For many locals and tourists in north central Florida, when the temperatures hit the triple digits, it means it's time for a getaway to the nearby springs. Juniper Springs in the Ocala National Forest was one of the first in the south to be developed into a recreational complex. Dr. Willett Boyer is a curator at the Marion County Museum of History and Archaeology and says it wasn't always easy to access many of the region's natural wonders. Ocala National Forest was actually one of the first areas that was actually created um, as a national park um, east of the Mississippi River uh, back in the days of Teddy Roosevelt. But uh, FDR was the one who uh, created or mobilized the core of men and others that were able to actually build a lot of what you see here. The Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, was a federal agency of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal administration. It hired hundreds of thousands of unemployed men to work on various manual labor jobs across the country. Many of these jobs were done in forests, national parks, and other protected lands. And as with the CCC all over the United States, um, their job was to uh, build infrastructure, to uh, build things like the park here, but also basic things like roads and sewers and that sort of thing. A lot of the uh, area in downtown Ocala that had not been constructed before, used before, was actually built uh, partly by civilian conservation corps members. But the thing that the uh, CCC uh, uh, camp here is best known for, uh, because it's the area that's still the most visible, are the things that were built here in the Ocala National Forest. And here at Juniper Springs is one of them, but a lot of the original trails and a number of the original uh, uh, areas for uh, visitors and campers to stay here in the forest were actually built uh, by the CCC. The transformation of the state's wilderness into an area that would be accessible to the public is one of the legacies of the CCC in Florida. Prior to the construction of roads and bridges along the Oklawaha River, the best way to access the springs was by ferry. Today, Juniper Springs is conveniently located along a major motor route in the forest. If you're taking a look at, at you know, what was actually done here, you get a feel for the difference from before to after. You see a, uh, an image uh, here of what the uh, construction would have looked like. This is the springs before any of what you see here was built. You can see that you've got the water flowing, but you've got kind of a rough overgrown area. You've got stuff that was kind of cut out there in the background. Then you can see here they're building things, and then you have the final you know, form of the pond with the spring house and everything else. So an area that was just you know, off in the middle of the woods and almost impossible of access turned into something that was accessible for a lot of people. Another legacy of the CCC is the contribution of the individual workers to the local community. Many of the men in the Ocala camp decided to stay in the region even after their year of contracted work was up. They had the opportunity for education and for you know, training in particular areas that are right here and the opportunity to explore and be here. Um, the gentlemen who were here 
uh, A.E. Absher, um, his uh, son, uh, Roy Absher, um, lives here locally and has been you know, prominently involved with a number of things, was a county commissioner once upon a time. Um, Alvin Potter, Claude Neal, uh, their families are still here. A lot of the men that, you know, were here as a part of this work with the CCC or other things, you know, stayed on and our folks that, you know, their families um, or descendants are still here in Marion County today. The people themselves, some of them actually stayed on and became a pretty important part of, you know, life here locally. With World War II looming, skilled labor was in high demand. The CCC not only made way for projects like the construction of the Juniper Springs complex, it also provided the camp workers with training for skilled jobs. People in the CCC at that time would have been a pretty you know, typical cross-section of, of uh, folks living in the United States because the Depression impacted almost everybody. Um, and one thing that would also uh, come out of the work here was people who received training in building things like this when you know, World War II began. Uh, people who had specialized training, some of them who had learned to do things like this, might be going into uh, the CBs of construction battalions or might be doing other you know, valuable things during the time when the U.S. was putting a push into the war effort. So overall, uh, the presence of the CCC here has an immediate local impact in the sense that you have areas like Juniper Springs and some of the other areas here built for long-term use. And longer term, it has the impact of people coming here uh, some folks that were with the Corps receiving training that would benefit them, you know, in the immediate future. Though there is little evidence in the Ocala National Forest of the CCC camp itself, a mill house which ran their electricity, and an old dining hall used by African-American camp workers, the legacy of their work is seen all around. Today, Juniper Springs is one of the most popular areas to visit at the Ocala National Forest. Visitors can swim in the springs, take a canoe through the Juniper Run, and explore the woods nearby. The work of these men continues to benefit locals and tourists alike nearly 80 years later. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Monica Barra. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society to get our daily posting Today in Florida History. You can also visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It's also made possible by the Kislak Family Foundation, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.